0: Well, good morning again. Let's start off with a what-if scenario. What-if scenario. What if you're in a class at college? Let's say you're, you're, um, I don't know, talking philosophy or civilization. And your professor looks at you, and in the um, interest of being open-minded, he says, says, I understand that you're a Christian. Um, Why don't you explain to us briefly what it is that Christians believe? Come to the front of the class. The whiteboard's yours if you want to use it, and just tell us, what is it all about? Your heart probably is racing like a, you know, a NASCAR engine at at that moment, but what if? What if? Or what if you're away at a trade show with some colleagues from work? You're out to dinner with them, things are kind of light and conversational, And, and they say, I know faith is a really big deal to you, I've kind of been wanting to ask you, why? You know, why this whole Christianity thing? Um, Can you explain it to me? What if? What I'm really asking you to consider is, what if you were given an opportunity, like this wide open door of opportunity, to speak about the faith? What is it that you would speak about? What would animate that conversation? And and maybe a follow-up question would be, how would your audience affect the answer that you gave? Would it change it at all, perhaps? The reason I ask this question is because the Apostle Paul is given just such an opportunity in our passage today. In Acts 13, Paul is delivering what turned out to be the very first sermon he's ever preached, or at least the very first sermon he preached that was recorded. And what it does is it provides a snapshot of how Paul communicates the message of Christianity to, in this case, his fellow Jews, to uh, religious people. You know, people who are familiar, very familiar with the Old Testament. Later on in Acts, actually in a couple weeks, Shelton's going to talk to us about how Paul communicates the same message, but to a different audience, to uh, irreligious people, non-Christian or or non-religious people, and, and how he speaks to them in a somewhat different manner. The core of the message doesn't change. The core is is exactly the same, no matter who he is speaking to. And you, you see this in the book of Acts. Every single speech or sermon that is delivered in Acts, it all goes back to, to the same thing. And you know what that thing is? The resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, the resurrection. And so all the speeches and the sermons, they focus on the resurrection. And so that's what we're going to do today. I think it's really helpful, though. We're four weeks away from Easter right now. And so in order to... Um, you know, think about it in, ahead of time. I mean, hopefully what it means is that God is going to lead you between now and then to have like conversations with people about the resurrection. Having this opportunity to think about it in advance, it's a great chance to do so. And I also want to say that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're unsure about Christianity, um, I always assume that there's going to be people here who, um, who who are not believers. And what I want to say to you is, it's a perfect time for you to consider this, this idea of resurrection. Um, and, and I hope you'll listen carefully because it turns out to be extremely good news. All right, Acts 13, if you want to turn in your Bible, beginning in verse 26. This is Paul's sec- or first missionary journey. He has traveled into a city called Antioch, which is a different Antioch than the one we looked at last week. As was Paul's custom, he enters into the Jewish synagogue on the, on the Sabbath. And during the synagogue liturgy, after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the time when a visiting rabbi who would, would stand up and kind of give commentary on the reading, he launches into this big speech. And we, start, we resume it in 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been given the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they have found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For, after David, uh, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised from, grazed up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we're going back to the well again. A three-point sermon. (laughs) I've been pretty consistent with those recently. Three points that I want to speak to you about on the resurrection. Point number one, the resurrection is fact, not preference. Secondly, the resurrection is imagination-inspiring, certainly not boring. And thirdly, the resurrection is incredibly, incredibly wonderful and applicable to the here and now. Maybe as I started out the sermon, you were, 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 um, you know, thinking along these lines, like, Brad, those what-if scenarios that you gave, they're not very realistic. Because let's face it, most people in today's culture, they don't ask you the question, you know, why are you a Christian? They, they don't ask that. And if you're thinking along those lines, you're right. It's extremely rare in, today to have um, anyone ask you that question. It's kind of like it's rare for somebody to ask you, uh, why is it that you like Mexican food? I mean, it's just your preference. And if you haven't noticed, that is how religious beliefs are treated in our culture today. Religious beliefs, they're really not about propositional truth. They are they're more like preferences or opinions that one might have that you know, might work for you and it might not work for another person. And by that same token, I don't know if you realize, but the reason many people, maybe most people in our culture, reject Christianity, it's not because of propositional truth. It's based on likes and dislikes. More on that in a minute. So earlier in the sermon, uh, Paul's sermon, that is, I picked it up in the middle of of, uh, his telling it. But earlier, he goes through and he recounts the history of Israel. And and how really God is the subject of all of the verbs in Israel's history. So he says these types of things to the men in the synagogue. Uh, God chose our fathers. God made them prosper in Egypt. God led them out in the Exodus. God patiently endured their bad behavior in the desert. God brought them into a new land. God gave them a king the in king, king Saul. And then God did something wonderful. He gave them a man after my own heart. You know, he gave them King David. From there, David, Paul jumps 1,000 years in, forward in history. And he, he says he moves basically straight to Jesus. Straight to Jesus' death and resurrection. And says, in effect, all of it was predicted by the Old Testament. All of it. The resurrection was predicted by the Old Testament. And he says that in creative ways that, honestly, you and I are reading our Bibles. Probably the connections he makes are not the connections that you and I would make. For example, Psalm 2. Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, when in the world was Psalm 2 fulfilled? He says it was fulfilled on Easter. <laughs> He likens the resurrection of Jesus to um, God like, begetting new life into the son and declaring him to be the royal son of God on Easter Sunday. Then he goes on to Isaiah 55. He quotes Isaiah 55. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. He says that to Jesus. Well, how can you give the blessings of David on a uh, bestow them on a dead man? Well, you can't unless... Good Friday is not a period at the end of the sentence, but a comma, which is exactly what Paul is arguing. Jesus is still alive, and therefore he's able to receive David's blessings. Finally, he quotes Psalm 16. This is the same psalm that Peter, earlier in his Pentecost sermon, quoted. How you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And Paul says, hey, look, guys, we know where David's tomb is located. We we know that his bones are in that tomb. Psalm 16, it can't be referring to David. It's referring to the one whose body did not rot into dust. What's the point of it? The point is this. The early church did not regard the resurrection as merely a symbol. As kind of a, you know, after winter, there comes spring, spring. Or uh, there's a there's a silver lining in every cloud. It's not this symbol that it, that is uh, makes us feel better. Paul in the early church presents the resurrection as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And indeed, as an impossible to dismiss fact. As fact. And the one thing that I know about facts is that they can... All, facts are... They can be terribly irritating, yes? (laughs) I know I spend a good portion of my life trying to avoid all of those unflattering, inconvenient, and uncomfortable facts. That's the thing about facts. You may not like the facts. But at the end of the day, facts are facts. And the fact is, he says, the fact is we are witnesses to this event. It's crazy and bizarre, and we never would have believed it either. We have seen him. We have touched him. We have heard him. It's a fact. Okay, well, let me ask you then this question. We live in 21st century America. We have a different worldview than they do. Um, what evidence would you need to be convinced that the resurrection actually happened? What kind of evidence would you have to, to receive to say, okay, I, I believe that? Um, I think that you would need to have pretty strong evidence to conclude that, wouldn't you? Because it, it is, it's a, it's a ridiculously big claim. I mean, it's a supernatural claim, right? A guy came back, a, a, tr- a crucified, tortured man comes back from the dead. It, it would have to be strong evidence. Well, do you realize, though, that f- those first century Jews who believed in Jesus' resurrection, that they too must have gotten really strong evidence? Because they were just as skeptical as we are. You know, we find the resurrection hard to believe because our our modern worldview tells us that that couldn't happen. But first century Jews, they were the least likely people in all the world to believe that a man could actually be God. First century Jews, they had nowhere, nowhere was there in their category system that a man who was claimed to be Messiah, who was crucified, that he somehow gets resurrected in the middle of history before the end of time. (laughs) And yet, that is what Paul presents it as a fact and fulfillment uh, of all the scriptures. And here's where I think the rubber really meets the road. I believe, I believe one of the greatest challenges facing the American church today is we have to present the gospel in such a way that people either receive or reject Christianity based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus And not based upon all the other stuff. Not based upon all the other noise. I mean, if you talk with any secular person in our society today who is not a Christian, and you ask them, what what do you think of Christianity? 99% of the time, when they respond to you, they're going to be like, well, I don't like the hypocrisy of the church. I don't like the the politics that I associate with the church. I don't like this part of the Bible, which I find offensive. They're going to say, I don't like, I don't like, I don't like. But the issue on which everything stands and falls is not whether or not you like Christianity, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And unfortunately, what has happened in America, in American Christianity, is people are rejecting our faith, not on that basis, but because of all the other stuff, all the other noise, all the other garbage. And I don't think that we are aware of how inadvertently it's the other stuff that we are communicating to them. That's what we are leading, leading with. And we're not even aware of it. But that's what we're leading with. By what we say and what we talk about and what we do. Now, I hope you're, you don't misunderstand me. I'm not at all suggesting that people shouldn't repent of their sins. In fact, every time in the book of Acts, when the resurrection is presented to people, it is always followed by a call of like, Calling them to repent of their sins because Jesus is alive and Jesus is is a king. And and hey, we we all need to repent of our sins, right? But I think that our message of the death and resurrection of Jesus is tragically getting drowned out by all of the other noise. And therefore, our message is not getting the proper hearing that, that God wants it to have in America today. I'll tell you another reason why this is such a good strategy. In addition to being a biblical strategy, it's point number two, which is the resurrection is imagination-inspiring news. Here's a short story. Uh, one of the most famous actors of the 19th century was a British stage actor by the name of Char- William Charles Macready, British guy, 19th century, probably the majority of us have never heard of the guy, heard of him before. But there's this famous account where he's having a conversation with a British pastor. And the pastor, he comes up to him and asks him, you know, Mr. Magritte, can you explain something to me? You know, every evening you appear on stage before these massive crowds. Like night after night, they come to you wherever you perform. While me, on the other hand, I am preaching, I am preaching the essential, unchangeable truth of God, and I'm hardly getting any crowd at all. Why is that? And Magritte, um answers him. He says, sir, I think I know the reason. I present my fiction as though it were truth, and you present your truth as though it were fiction. And what did he mean by that? When people watched Magritte on the stage, the story that he was portraying to them was captivating. Even though that story wasn't real, it felt more real than reality. And by the same token, the minister's message from probably the Bible, um, on the other hand, his message of truth, it felt blah. You know, he made the truth feel blah. And, and I wonder if that's um, something that we inadvertently do today. You know, th- th- look, there are very strong arguments For believing in the truth of Christianity. For believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the only way people are going to give a fair hearing to those arguments. Is first by having their imaginations captured and captivated. By something wonderful and by something beautiful. And so I think this means that we. uh, Well it means several things. It means that we should be more discerning. um, It means that maybe you can't just go Bible verse, Bible verse, propositional truth. This is the truth. Get with the truth. Why don't you get with the truth? What you really have to do is connect the truth to people's, the the deepest longings of people's hearts, don't you? They have to be inspired. They have to be inspired by wonderment in a world where there is so little wonderment. They have to be inspired by um, a grander story. And by even looking at you, who, have to, who has to be previously inspired by that grander story, and you're living out that story in front of them as though it were real. You know, scholars point um, this out, that the reason early Christianity became so appealing in the first century is those early Christians helped their listeners see how the resurrection is really... It fulfills their longings better than anything else that had ever been proposed up until that point. The resurrection was a story, was news that nobody had ever come up with before. And it it plucks the heartstrings when it's told rightly. The resurrection is the so much better story than nobody else conceived of. I'll give you an example. You take the Greek philosopher Epicurus. He taught something that plenty of people still believe today, which is that when you die, it's over. And when you die, you know, extinguish the candle; it's done. You're just, you're just done, right? Um, you don't exist anymore. That's it. And Epicurus then would say to his his uh, disciples, "Don't worry about death, then, because death is nothing. It's this it's just, existence is just over." On the other hand, the majority of Greek thinkers of that day uh, believed that there is an afterlife. Oh yeah, there's an afterlife. There is an underworld or an overworld or a netherworld. Um, They have various formulations for this. But what is that world like, they wondered? Is the underworld better than this life or is it worse than this life? What is it going to be like? Well, nobody can quite be sure. Along comes the early Christians and they have a better story, a better vision. They say to the rest of the world, we know the future, and the future is not darkness. We have seen the future, and the future is not non-existence. We, we have touched the future and heard the future. And it means that you are not just dust in the wind. You know, many H- Hindus and Buddhists today believe that when we die, you're just like a drop of water that goes back into the ocean. You've heard that before, Right? You know, you, your soul is released from its body and the soul uh, loses its individuality and it goes into this, like, it vanishes into the universal collective. That's one of the reasons why they practice uh, cremation because there's no lasting significance to your personal body because your soul, it, it, it vanishes into, oh, the nirvana or, or, yeah, the universal collective, whatever. But do you realize that if the, in the future... You lose your individuality in the ocean. Do you know what that means? It means that there, there can be no future love. There is no love in the future. Because love requires individuality. Love requires persons and personhood. Love requires a you and a me. Tim Keller, as he was reflecting on this, he did so so well. And he said, you know, what I know all I know is that the main thing that makes people happy in this life, it's love. The deepest desire of the human heart that that we're aware of is is to have loving relationships. So when somebody comes along and says, oh, you don't need to be afraid of death because when you die, you just don't exist. You're you're just subsumed into the universal collective. I say, you're telling me that love has gone forever. Why shouldn't I be afraid of that? You should be afraid of that. No, but the resurrection... That was professed by these early Christians. Shows us that the future is personal. You're not a faceless drop of water in the ocean. Um, You in the future will be you. Just as Jesus after his resurrection became Jesus. um, I thought, okay, I will do this. I was kind of wondering if I do this. You know the uh, YMCA, right? You in your future are going to become But like the capital Y, the capital U. Do you know what I mean by that? The you that you have never been in this life. The you that you're so frustrated by that you've never actually achieved. The the you that you've only seen glimpses of that you on your best days in this life. That you. The you that you've always aspired to. um, That you. Things come back to life in the resurrection. And the capital Y, U, comes to life. Not only you, but your loved ones. They come back to life. Love in its fullness comes to life. I mean, when you hear it that way, when when you hear me put it that way, like, doesn't it make you want to sign up for it? (laughs) Like, sign me up. I want that. That's right. Amen, Warren. (laughs) He's got his arms back up in the air. But like, we want that. Everybody wants that. And when you can start to First, have your own imagination inspired by that, and then communicate that to other people. In the resurrection, think about this. We get a life and a love that is better than anything we can possibly conceive of right now. I I, I challenge you to try that. I challenge you, try as hard as you might imagine to, uh, to conceive, to think of your best possible future. Um. You, the very best possible future that you could come up with. Like, spend an hour trying to do that, or, or multiple hours, and what you will find is whatever you conceive of is, is simply a light year away from what it's actually going to be. It's, it's indescribably wonderful, this future. Point number three then. Yeah, it is unimaginably wonderful. And it is also applicable to the here and now. Look with me, if you will, at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been given, has been sent the message of this salvation. So Paul comes in and he says, guys, I've got great news for you. It's a message of salvation. Why is it such good news? Skip ahead to verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. My daughter, Anya, in the, who's in the eighth grade. You know, too bad she's not in here this morning. She's in the nursery. But Anya has a friend who loves In-N-Out Burger. I'm in loves In-N-Out Burger, so much so that a couple months ago, I think her and her dad, they decided to drive all the way to Salt Lake City and stayed the night in Salt Lake City just to eat a burger down there. I wonder, have you ever done anything impulsive like that based on a food craving? I heard a funny story uh, that told by Kevin DeYoung. He, he was up in seminary in Boston at Gordon-Conwell Seminary when he and his buddies, one day in the afternoon, they had a Krispy Kreme a donut craving. And uh, they're like, where's the closest Krispy Kreme? We're not into this Dunkin' Donuts thing. So they pull up up the internet, look around. The closest Krispy Kreme is in New York City, like right in their backyard, right? (laughs) So they pile into the car. They do the four-hour drive to New York City. They get to the Krispy Kreme right before it closes. A bunch of 20-year-old guys. they, They each buy a dozen donuts, scarf them down like you would expect, and... It's late at night. They have to turn around and get back to Boston because some of them have an eight o'clock class the next morning. So Kevin DeYoung is in his eight o'clock theology class with this um, fat sugar glaze hangover, right? And he didn't get much sleep to begin with. And he's sitting there just barely keeping his eyes open. And somehow there was a break in the class and he went up to his professor and said, hey, I'm sorry if you see me nodding off. I mean, I, I, I... I went to Krispy Kreme in New York City last night. And the, the professor says, no, you didn't. No way. Nobody would do that. Krispy, no. And then it becomes this big thing in the class. He's trying to persuade the entire class. No, really, we did this. I went, I went to, and they're like, no, you didn't. And he's like, how do I prove it? How do I prove that I did? And he realizes in his back pocket is his wallet. And inside of his wallet is, is a receipt He pulls out the wallet and he says, There it is, fellas. Krispy Kreme, New York City, time-stamped 9.48 p.m., 12 dozen donuts. Um, He produces the receipt. What is the receipt um, which shows that your sins are forgiven? It's Easter. It's Easter. Easter is the receipt it 's actually i don 't know if you 've thought of this before. Easter is the receipt that proves everything. <laughs> Easter proves everything Easter proves it proves Christmas. Easter proves that Christmas is true, that this man really is God in the flesh. Uh, Easter proves that you, Good Friday was good, otherwise Good Friday would have been heinous. Easter proves that Good Friday is good. Easter proves oh, we well, 've already been hearing me say throughout the sermon Easter is the receipt that proves. That that guaranteed resurrection of the future, that is going to happen. Easter is a receipt that proves everything. You know, one of the worst evangelism strategies some Christians operate by, I know I've done this before, is the strategy strategy that says, I'm right, you're wrong. I'd love to tell you about that. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you a little bit more um, about that. Yeah, you've probably seen that strategy deployed before. But Francis Schaefer was so smart. He said, whenever you're talking to somebody, if you get an hour to talk, just listen for 55 minutes. Listen and ask good questions. Ask this question. Do you believe that Easter is true? I mean, if you ask that question to somebody, do you believe Easter is true? And just listen to what they have to say. You will learn a lot uh, from their answers. And then maybe, just maybe, after you've listened for a long time, maybe God will give you the opportunity to say, I-, I believe that it is true. I do. I believe it is true. I have good reasons for that. But do you know what inspires me the most? What Jesus' resurrection says that this sad and sorry world, this world that we are living in, it won't always be this way. This sad, tribalized horribly politicized, COVID-smited world. It will not be that way forever. Resurrection is God's assurance that the way things are, the natural state of the world is not really natural at all. It's the receipt that all things will be made new. It's the receipt that all things will be made new. And isn't that ultimately what every human being is longing for? (laughs) It's to see that receipt. Well, I'm going to conclude the sermon by uh, sharing one more statement with you, which I came across. It really hit me. And I've shared it already with some of you, but I'll, I'll share it now with the entire congregation. And it is this statement. What you believe about the future is the best prediction of how you will act today. What you believe about the future is the best prediction of how you will act today. You know, Obviously, on an individual Christian level, like, if we believe we got a resurrection future, like, what does that do to us right now? I mean, that gives us joy, right? It, it like, affects our insides. If we really believe it, it affects us so profoundly if I have a resurrection future, then I have powerful resources for enduring suffering and hardship in the present. I mean, you can do all of that kind of stuff. And if you simply read church history, you see so many examples of Christians who believed, who based on their resurrection future, endured persecution and hardship so admirably, so beautifully. Do you know the names of Richard and Sabrina Vermbrand? Richard and Sabrina. So they were a Jewish, Romanian Jewish couple who converted to Christianity. They they were convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And this would have been early 20th century. So her mom and dad, they were killed by the Nazis. Then um, they marry, they become Christians. 1944, the Soviets are occupying Romania— and, and he ends up becoming a pastor of the underground church in Romania because the, the Soviet communists were, they were coming for him. And then in 1948, four years after he became the pastor, he was arrested and he was imprisoned. So Richard Wurmbrand actually testified before the United States Senate on, um, on you know, what had happened to him and described just how terrible the, his imprisonment was. He was put in solitary confinement, confinement for three years And for all three years, he never saw another human being except the face of his jailers. For three years. Um, They tortured him. They lied to him. They said, we've killed your wife. They said, the church that you pastored, it's gone. There are no more Christians left in Romania. He was... In prison for 13 years, and they just lied to him and tortured him for, uh, for the duration of that time. She was also put into jail, Sabrina. And do you know what the charges were that they uh, imprisoned her? They actually sent her to a prison camp um, for what the charges were? Subversive evangelism, <laughs> which is a charge that I hope all of us will be guilty of. Subversive evangelism. And they told her, We buried your husband, the man is dead, um, it's over. So as I said, his various imprisonments totaled something like 13 years. And when he got out, they had told him there would be no more churches. And what did he find? That Christianity in Romania during the persecution had grown 300%. The underground church had grown 300%. He found that his wife was still alive. They were reunited. Uh, He found that Jesus was still at work. Jesus is always at work because Jesus is always alive. Sometimes we just, we don't believe that he's still alive and still at work. He's alive. And what they did is they ended up forming an organization, you probably, you may have heard of, Voice of the Martyrs, which is out there today, which chronicles the, the, what happens uh, to the persecuted church throughout the world. But go back to that, origi- that previous statement here in the conclusion. What you believe about the future is the best prediction for how you act today. That is true for you on an individual la- level as you deal with your own sufferings. But the- that's also true of the church. It's true of the American church. What we believe about the American church is the best prediction for how we will act today. And I've been telling you for a while... I think there are tough times ahead for the American church. And that is what makes me so optimistic for the future spread of the gospel in America. Because there will be tough times for the American church. I mean, how do you get to grow your church by 300% like they did in Romania? How do you become the church in China Where millions of people are sharing their faith and millions of people are coming to believe in Jesus Christ. It is only through some really hard times they had to endure Soviet communism. Even today in Iran. Did you know that the church in Iran is doubling yearly? Why is that? It's because because of the hardships. Friends, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. And nobody likes the fact that it is a Good Friday world. But when you are an Easter person living in it, you have to understand, life comes back from the dead in a Good Friday world. And when I think about the church, the American church and American Christianity, we all know that the American church is exceedingly weak. Her faith is flabby. She's comprised of people like us whose faith is flabby. The American church has enjoyed just all this long history of of prosperity. When was the last time we were persecuted? (laughs) I mean, we're fat cats. We've grown grown fat and complacent. Uh, And that's why our churches are so weak. And that's why our faith is so weak. And that's why I'm so excited about our future. And I I don't quite get it because it seems like there has been some disconnect between what I've been trying to say over the last month and a half and what maybe some people are hearing me say. I, I am not saying that Good Friday isn't hard. I'm not saying Good Friday isn't heinous. I am saying that there is always an Easter that follows Good Friday. And, you know, the news might be bad for America, but that means the news is great for the American church. I don't know if you've ever considered that there might be an inverse relationship between the two. Right? I mean, even something as simple as your, the economy tanks. Well, guess what? That's good for spiritual renewal, <laughs> isn't it? And you could apply that on so many different levels. When, when things go bad in the society, um, and when, things get, when the, the heat gets turned up in the oven, that is very good for us and for the spread of the gospel, to purify us and to really drive us back to this truth that Jesus is alive and he is our hope and strength. Amen? So is resurrection in your individual future? Yes. What does that do for you today? Is resurrection in the American church's future? Yes. What does that do for us today? It means that death is not the final word. (laughs) life is. Life for you, life for the church, life for our city. And so friend, we come back to the very beginning when the door of opportunity opens for you and they ask you what it is. Why is it this Christianity thing? What is it that you believe? I hope you will know what you're going to say to them in response. It's the good news of resurrection. Amen.